Spring is in the air. It's two weeks till the French Open, and this is the Gray Zone. Clay Court no, tennis is not fair. Oh, that's great when we cut each other off at the very start of the podcast. Yeah, what did you say? Yep. Now nah, we just fucking just go. <laughs> What'd you say? Clay Court tennis is not fair, and no one likes it. I tell you, I feel bad because from a like from a coaching perspective, I think there's a lot to like about clay tennis. And I love getting my players out on the clay. I think it develops so many things. But I will say I'd much rather be in a climate-controlled indoor environment where I know where the bounce is going to be. <laughs> yeah. I just don't have the physical fitness or skill, which says a lot about me. But I just don't have the physical fitness or skill to enjoy playing on clay. Jeez. Tennis, tennis, tennis. Always tennis to you, Zach. Jeez. Oh, sorry. Did you want to talk about something else today? No, that's good. I like tennis. <laughs> no, for the record, right. I do. playing on clay is a bunch of fun. Winning on clay. Huh, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not one of the things you do. Yeah. Oh, winning period. <laughs> we got lots of listener questions, Al. Tons of them. Specifically, I've got two. You brought one. Um, we're going to get right into it. My buddy Magnus, colleague of mine, great coach, would like us to talk about... I'm going to paraphrase his question here because I... Yeah, yeah, because he couldn't even phrase his question. I'm not sure I can phrase the question. But it's something along the lines of, why do why and how do players techniques players techniques change subconsciously right so we see this happen you're not trying to work on anything with their forehand they're not even trying to do anything with their forehand and then you look three months down the line and some part of it looks different give me the answers though okay well I think there's there's many reasons right and i think we see this a lot um but one of the first ones that come to mind is it could just be just general coordination changing like for oh, better or worse, I think that can be be one of the things. I do think there'd be statistical studies that would suggest that coordination can actually like get worse, especially if you have a player that's like, say, if you have a a male that's around like fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, and growing very fast, mm-hmm. you can see that a lot. And the flip side of that too, like I found a lot of a lot of our athletes as they've gotten physically stronger, uh, it has appeared that their technique has changed, and I guess and. What I mean by that is they've just looked to be much more fluid or more stable in their swings um, as they've gotten physically stronger. Okay. So like I've got some feedback I'm... from people being being like, oh man, like you've done like technically the player X has improved a lot. Like, well, no, we haven't really done anything technical, but they've certainly been in the gym a lot more. So I wonder uh, um, your two thoughts on those two things. That makes sense to me in the sense that like, if you get stronger, it requires less effort and perhaps you can recruit, uh, you know, bigger muscles and the right muscles and you can be more fluid and relaxed. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I'm, I think it's more interesting to discuss when players technique changes for the worse mm-hmm. and you haven't done anything about it. Um, and so I think the, the, the like growth spurt thing makes a lot of sense. Do you think there, are there other scenarios where someone's coordination would just change randomly or is it, would it primarily be related to growth? Well, I think, <clears throat> I think it's possible for players of any ages where if they if they're not constantly fine tuning anything in their game and coordination being one of those things that you could see a a, a dip in those skills. Interesting. No, I actually I actually don't know. Like my feeling is that's correct, but I don't know mm. scientifically if that's true or not. Cause my cause my feeling is that a player's technique is more likely to change subconsciously if we want to use that word when they're executing that technique a lot in other words i actually think if they take like time off or whatever and then they come back and let's say it is a forehand 
then I think there's a very high chance that the technique stays the same. Now, of course, I guess there are limitations there in terms of if their phys- physiology changes, like we said, they get stronger, they get weaker, they grow or whatnot. Uh-huh. But I think, I think it's more likely to adapt because I think that's often what's happening when they're hitting a lot of those strokes. And then I guess my counter argument is when they're hitting that ball, isn't that in a sense, developing their coordination? It's very specific coordination. It's coordination specific to that motor pattern. Yeah. But aren't they still like working on it in that case? Yeah, certainly. Well, I guess I have a quick question for you before that. When when we're talking about technique changing, it's, we just essentially mean the overall look the player has when they're hitting it. Is that sort of what we're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And what did what did you say before that? I was just thinking like, I was thinking like they're, I think it's more likely to happen when they're hitting that stroke a yeah, lot. When they're hitting it a lot. And, yeah. and I think therefore that would suggest that they're, they're actually are working on their coordination when they're doing that. So I just, I'm wondering, yeah, because I think that's interesting, this idea, because I hadn't thought of that, this idea that the coordination, uh, their, someone's coordination would change or some, some way they coordinate their body would change and that would therefore affect the technique. Um, yeah, it hadn't occurred to me. Well, it's, but it's, I was just wondering how that would happen. So, yeah, I'm not sure because I'm mean, okay. Then we we need to know as well if every time a player hits a ball, if it has a influence on their coordination, um, mm-hmm. and if that influence is positive or negative. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm think yeah, I'm thinking too. Like, I just I'm uh, thinking outside the box in terms of answers that I hadn't considered, but I'm thinking too that it could be, um you know, as a response to, uh, you know, injury or pain or, or, or muscle tightness or anything like that. Like a yeah. player is trying to avoid a particular movement. Mm-hmm. And so they subconscious sort of, I guess that's semi-consciously, but like they start to alter their technique, not for the sake of the technique, but because of the way it makes their body feel. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Like, oh. yeah, usually like closely linked to rhythm and relaxation, right. As we've talked about before. Um, but I guess the other part of it too, is like, depends on, it's possible for the technique to to appear like it's changed if, like you said, you're doing a lot of volume on it, but maybe you're not getting a lot of feedback on maintaining fundamentals of those techniques. Like I often find, like after big competitive blocks, usually we follow that up with like having to clean up technique. Okay, so this is this was tied into Magnus's question because he actually he was telling me he went to a conference uh, once and he was talking to this uh, tour coach and the guy said. Uh, it was the guy was talking about traveling with players and he said like you have to travel you can't the players can't go out and compete on their own you have to go in with them because he said every day should end with cleaning up their technique and i've heard and i've and i've heard other people talk about like this this idea that the that essentially in practice you're you're cleaning the technique you're making technique better and then the technique always gets worse in competition and then you're cleaning it to make it better and then it gets worse and it's like a constant cycle and i've heard plenty of people talk about that and I can uh-huh. see some logic behind it, but I'm not entirely convinced by it um, yet. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So you're 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 not sure if it's true that technique gets worse um, through lots of competition. I, no, I, I agree that it can and and does happen. I guess my argument is that I'm not uh, I don't I'm I'm not sure that it happens all the time, and I'm not yeah. sure what are the causes of it. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with you there. Um, and Magnus's other point was. Um, Jeez, coffee. <laughs> so no, sorry. Magnus' other point was that he, like, his belief is that in a session should always be technical cleanup, even if you're on the road and stuff like that. 
No, this is the guy that he had heard speak at a conference. Okay, the guy that he, he had heard speak. this guy speak at a conference and say like, you should end every at the end of every day when you're on the road should be cleaning technique. Yeah, so I just, think that like everything yeah. else, th- that would specifically depend so much on the player that you have in front of you, right? Because I know like I've worked with some players who like really, really love technical feedback and they love to feel certain things and, and get certain volume on certain things. Mm-hmm. There were some other players like that just like are so uninterested in getting feedback on technique and it's just like, um, so I think it really depends. Yeah. Um, but does that stuff, like does not doing that stuff over long periods of time or doing that stuff influence the long-term look of the way that somebody swings over periods of time um, for better or worse? And that's like, yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, um, but I guess the one thing I was thinking as as we were talking about this too is when we say the technique changes, does it always mean that it like maybe it changes in a high volume environment where they're competing a lot and actually becomes more effective or more efficient? So it's like they're oh. finding ways where it might not sort of look a certain way, but like there's got to be a reason why the technique changes. And certainly we'd both agree that one of the reasons is that uh, maybe players aren't aware that the technique is changing. But B, it's like maybe they're just finding a way to be tactically efficient in some sort of changes that look visible in the way that they're swinging. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's a, I, I think that makes perfect sense. And we've sort of talked about it before with constraints, where mm-hmm. I think that, I think that's exactly, in a lot of cases, that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about they're getting, the player's getting a lot of volume in an environment that is imposing some sort of constraint. Right. Yeah. So they're playing against people who hit faster than them. And then all of a sudden their swing starts to get a little shorter. Right. Or they're playing against, they're always receiving slow balls and then they start accelerating more and they start using their arm more and they start slapping mm-hmm. more and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um. You know, or conversely, you know, they play, they're playing lots of volleys and then their, their volley technique gets a little shorter, more compact and whatever, whatever. So it can go in both directions, improve the technique, worsen the technique. Um, and adapt and, and, but, but, but I think, yeah, it's totally logical to expect an adaptation to the constraint imposed by the environment simply because, um, because the player is trying to be, like you said, more tactically successful. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, what I, I guess what I was getting at and what Magnus was getting at is the, you know, the situations when that's not totally obvious, at least from the, at first glance. Right. Yep. They, they haven't been on a long competitive block. They haven't been playing with uh, their, their environment hasn't changed considerably. Yeah. But then you look at it and you go, holy smokes, I didn't even realize this, but they've completely changed, you know, this, that or the other. Um, their preparation looks different or in this certain moment of the swing, they're doing something different. And you go like, you know, and you can't you can't think of anything uh, that has changed or any constraint that has been put in place. And then conversely, some players for whom that never happened. That's yeah. I think that's also the interesting part is there's some players who who essentially have the exact same technique from the age of eight to the age of 18. Yeah. And it just does not change. And on the flip side, you have others who it's changing every two weeks in yeah. some capacity or another. Yeah. And yeah. the difference is there. I'm, I'm really interested in the differences there. Yeah, I'm not sure I have an answer for that. Do you mind if I ask you two two quick questions before we get I to sp- that one? specifically told you I had the listener questions. So you would do the talking. <laughs> no, it's but. And, and now, and now you're asking back. me questions. I was getting ready to sit back and not have to do any thinking. And now you're asking me, all right, go. Well, fire up that big old brain, baby. Um, <laughs> the one thing I was thinking as, as we went through that last bit as well is, I actually think it's a good thing if technique changes on its own. Mm. So I guess my, my question before that too is like, do we assess that potential changes, good or like, okay, do we assess that potential changes are bad just based on the way they look or like what is our framework of determining if a technical change 
is decreasing the performance of a player. You know, yeah, that's, that's I mean, but I but I've seen no, no, but I but I've also seen, and I think you have too, but I've seen players whose technique changes, mm-hmm. and it change and it creates a worse outcome on the ball. Yeah. Right. Okay. So then now, it's like so yes. So our framework is that it's like we're not just saying oh it looks different. It's like oh it it looks different, and now as a result X Y and Z are being do- done differently. So now I need to address it. I mean, in other cases, it is a stylistic thing that changes. Right. And you maybe and you maybe make an argument for go okay long term I think the other one was better but this is like of course there's moments like that and there's mm-hmm. other moments where you look and see it changes and you go like mm, all right I think it's I don't think it's made a difference I think we'd let it go but there's also moments I've seen where it there there is a change and yep. and there yeah and it's uh and it has a negative impact on what what they can do with the ball yeah I I just think my overall feeling on that is like if things are are changing I think it's a good thing. And I think generally it's a good thing because I think it it bridges the gap between an athlete really owning the biomechanic or owning the skill for themselves sooner. And now that's not to say that it doesn't require like some things don't require maintenance here or there. But like, I don't know, I think if we're pigeon, pigeonholing players into being like, well, no, it has to be the finish has to be here. The preparation has to be here. And I'm guilty mm. of that, that sometimes as well. But it's like, well, give them the framework and then. And then just yeah. take it from there, like let let them own the swing or own the skill from there. But I guess what's tricky right now is like you and I are having this debate talking about a theoretical thing that doesn't exist without a player in front of us where we can look at data or look at the swing or whatever else. But I guess it's the point of like an audio audio podcast is to do those things. But it's like I, I praised you last week for how neat and tidy and systematic all of your thoughts were. And it's like there's not often conversations we have in the pod where it's very difficult for us to be categorical. But this mm-hmm. is maybe the first big conversation that I found like I'm kind of teetering back and forth. I'm like, no, it's good. No, it's bad. No, it's good. And it's like maybe without that test subject or or, or data set in front of us, it's, it would be difficult for me to really come up to any sort of conclusion. Yeah, for sure. And and I was going to call you out there a little bit because you said it's good. But then you also said like after competition blocks, you do a lot of cleaning. So it's yeah. so, so clearly it's not always good. But I, but I think we've gotten... I think we've we've laid at least a foundation for some more reflection because I think, you know, it's interesting to consider, like you said, first of all, is it a stylistic change or is there an actual impact on the ball? And then considering any, you know, physiological changes, changes in coordination, changes in strength, changes in, in flexibility and range of motion as well, which can change the technique. But then also um, to look at, you know, were there, uh, you know, were there injuries that might cause them to avoid this? Was it and then was it because they were playing points because they were receiving a particular type of ball? Um, yeah, I mean, at least it gives us a little bit of a framework to start to look at. I still think there are some players whose technique is less sticky than others. Yeah. Oh, if we want to use that terminology, yeah. there's yeah. some players where you, you know, you, you work on something and you go like, yep, oh, we've, we've acquired that skill. It's good. It's, it's, you know, and you do, and you do everything right. And you, you open it up and you, and you get enough repetitions and you put it under pressure and in points and, and it all, you know, decision-making and it all looks good and you're like yeah we've we've mastered that and then two weeks later they're doing something else and it's like what what are you doing and yeah. i don't know and i'm still very interested in what causes that yeah. i wonder i wonder if it has something to do with over or under thinking i wonder if some players who are more yeah. i'm just thinking i'm just thinking off the top of my head but i wonder if there's some players who are more um introspective maybe isn't the right word, but along those lines, like introspective and analytical. And Mm -hmm. so they're always, 
analyzing their stroke and their technique and what they should be doing instead of um, just essentially shutting their brain off and hitting the ball yeah. and yeah. thinking about intentions. I want to put the ball there. I want to put the ball there. I wonder that links, if that's, and that links into, I don't know, maybe you were going to say this, but that links into us as coaches and the type and the amount of feedback that we give as well. hundred percent. And links into the flow state conversation that we briefly had last week, yeah. right? About like, yeah, like, especially when we train, train technique, it's like there's sometimes we want the player to be in training, like very aware of what they're doing technically. And it's like, but we don't want that in the match. And, no, but that, and sorry, to, but it, and it also, just while I have it, it also links in and perhaps proves me wrong to our point back a while back on uh, constraints led approach and nonlinear pedagogy. Like it also links into that because there is an argument. Uh, there, there is an argument. I've seen this before that if they learn it, you know, if they learn a skill through, um, through sort of external feedback and external means external. And so they learn it through intense reflection, essentially, and thinking, then it will always be, there's an argument anyway, that it'll always be more prone to choking right. versus if they learn it implicitly, that's the word I was looking for. If they learn it implicitly through feeling and through, you know, constraints and exercises like that, then they never have to think about it. They've never analyzed it. And then it sticks more. That's the argument. And I think yeah. there is some backing for it. I don't want to suggest that it's complete bogus. Um, so it, perhaps it, perhaps it links into that and, uh, yeah. and, and shows how full of shit we are, which wouldn't be the first time, but could be, could be, I have two other thoughts for you on this one. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with the concept of myelin? Yeah. 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 So, um, just a quick, for anybody who's uninterested, apparently what people refer to as, and you can make, make sure, make sure, make sure you get, make sure you get this definition, right? Because Magnus was very critical of our definitions of VO2 max a couple of episodes oh, geez, ago. Yeah, as he should be. That's yeah. That's the fact of a Louis thing as well. He's like, like I'm quite poor with the physical development aspect of coaching tennis. And like the whole Louis thing is like, well, you have to be more, there's no way around it. You just need to be, if you know it's a weak spot for you, you just need to be better at it. And so like yeah. when I hear that somebody's like, yeah, your definition wasn't right. It's like, yeah, okay, next time. Anyway, so I'm going to loosely or poorly explain the concept of myelin, which is most people are familiar with the concept of like a muscle memory, right? And now muscle memories don't really exist. However, there are neural pathways in the brain that they um, they refer to as like myelin pathways, which are hardwired movements for things that we've historically done throughout our life, right? So if if I'm picking up my coffee cup to have a sip, there's generally a, a myelin pathway of a, of, I guess, a motor motor pathway that I move my arm that I've historically done throughout my life. Now, I can do that multiple different ways, but usually without thinking and instinctively, I'll raise my arm the same way. So obviously linking this to tennis, um, every time that an athlete swings a racket or moves a racket, there's a certain a certain physical pathway that, or something that happens in the brain where your arm will move a very similar way over and over and over. Um, how, how's my definition so far? I was. Are you going to explain sort of the what myelin does? Because I can go over that real quick if yeah, you want. Yeah, jump in on that real quick, and then I'll. I was just going to say jump back in. Yeah, I was just to 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 tidy up the definition. I guess it's just that there's all these there's all these neural pathways, but every time, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure this is accurate. But every time you sort of execute one of those neural pathways, myelin is produced, and myelin essentially sort of coats the 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 that pathway and allows the signals to travel faster. And sort of more efficiently. Mm. And so the analogy that I remember from whatever book I read was it's like if there's snow on the ground and you've got, uh, you know, a path and there's and the snow is is thick and, and, and deep and and there's footsteps where the paths were. And as 
more and more people take this path, then the feet trample the snow down more and more and more. And the path gets easier and easier to walk on as opposed to walking through the foot of snow or whatever. That's essentially what myelination does is the more that pathway is executed, it makes it, uh, it, it, it increases the, uh, efficiency and the speed of that, uh, neural pathway. Yeah. Well said, uh, the analogy I always use is the, the driving through a cornfield one, but I think the, the snow one is probably more relatable for people in Sweden and Canada. Um, <laughs> so I guess there's two things, two things as it relates to this is one is like a uh, mile under that mile pathway. Um, it, it's pretty hard wire where if you're making any change, like major changes to how that pathway is going to move a mile tires very, very quickly, apparently. And it'll revert to a um, to something that it's more comfortable with after a very low number of repetitions. And this happens uh, for better or worse technique. So somebody could have really, really poor technique. And it's like, well, that that pathway is still hardwired. So changing poor technique becomes very, very difficult. The reason I bring all of this up is as it relates to somebody competing a lot. And I guess like technique looking different. Is it possible, like you said at the start, that they get that they've been playing so much and there's so much volume that all the technique that you've done over the last three months to get to a certain place really isn't as hardwired as we thought it was. So things revert to a older look that was maybe a less efficient look. Like, is there a scientific basis to suggest that that could, could occur? That's a really good point. A hundred percent there is. I remember hearing the, the concept um, that sort of was like, you know, there are three factors in determining which motor pattern you execute in a, in a given moment. And they were primacy, recency, and frequency. And so the idea was that like the thing that you, the first ever technique you had or the first ever pathway you used is going to be sort of hardwired in your brain in a sense. And like you might have a certain, there's a certain element of bias towards the first thing you ever learned. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also recency. So that was primacy. Then recency, there's an element of bias towards something. If you did it two minutes ago, then of course it's easier to recall. And then of course, frequency, right? There's something, whatever you've executed the most, there's a certain level of bias towards that. And then I yep. guess the idea is that there's a combination of those factors that goes into deciding which which motor pattern you execute. But all that to say that I think like, yeah, rec- you know, rec- recency and frequency and certainly frequency plays a plays a big role. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that is a good point. And that maybe ties into the whole technical cleaning thing is like, you know, if you, if someone's been, executing inefficient or subpar technique for three, four years, let's say, and then you come on and you say, okay, we're going to fix this and we're going to address this and whatever. Yeah. Maybe you just, maybe you do need to make sure like we're going to get, no matter what we're working on, we're going to get a hundred reps on this every single day because we just need to over counteract those four years of you. Cause otherwise that's going to, you're, you're going to revert back over time. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Um, and again, just to I guess to wrap this whole part up, it's like this happens a ton, especially with, with our, our younger age group kids. Like I find most under 14 groups, you see see this stuff a lot. And there's like we mentioned, coordination reasons for that. There's focus reasons for that. But it's an interesting question, and it's one that I don't think I have a really clear answer on. So what would be interesting is in a couple of months, if we revisit some of the conversations that maybe we we felt we haven't been a hundred percent clear on or at least from, from my perspective right and like in, yep. in two months how does my thought on that changed um giving some time to think about it yeah and if you're listening to this and you think we're full of shit then uh let us know and you can come on the pod and defend yourself you would be I, in the cause, majority because i was gonna say because we get a lot of stuff wrong yeah i shared i don't know if you saw i got that little instagram uh notification there uh that were there was like three years ago today 
and it was three years ago, a few days ago that I, um, that I posted my most controversial blog post ever. I, I shared that on Instagram and yeah. it was the one, it was the one about why I think training to hit deep is generally overrated. Uh-huh. And the the internet obviously did not approve of that one because of course hitting deep is the most important thing according to them. Right. And uh, the only reason I uh, the only reason I bring it up is because the highlight of that was I shared it on LinkedIn and Yanko Tipsarevich commented and was like, "This is very well written, but you're wrong." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "Thanks, man." You... And I did. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so because I told this story, I kid you not, last week in group I told the story because we're working <laughs> on this awesome. a little bit of a depth theme. But didn't you rebut Yanko and and look at some of his matches and say, well, I just watched like however many points and the ball only lands in this zone X amount of times? Yeah, I charted I charted one I charted his first set against David Ferrer, uh, a set that he won at the U.S. Open. I, he won six four, and I charted it, and I was like, you only hit like six balls past the three quarter court line, man. Like you're hitting everything within between the service line and three quarter court so you, i mean like that's that that level of depth and i think i even said in the article i was like that level of depth is important yeah if you're hitting everything in the service box you're going to get crushed but otherwise just get it past the service line and uh, that's a little bit of an oversimplification sure but generally speaking i don't think there's much value in in really working to hit deeper and hit deeper and hit deeper i think it's more important to focus on pace and, and quality as i as i discussed in the article but there are situations but yeah i i was hoping to get into a discussion with him but he didn't acknowledge that one unfortunately okay, my follow-up was going to be yeah what what happened in the end are you guys like best buddies now or sharing beers or what i wish, but, uh, I cool. wish. but it's just like um, your experience getting into internet arguments about tennis people don't people don't engage people aren't as huge tennis nerds as we are so you call you either say you're right or you're wrong and they just go ah, okay whatever yeah, and maybe there's there's some rant coming as well about some online stuff where I just think, and this could be a, a quick 10-second thing, but like, if you believe that you're understanding, like, if you believe you can help people by posting material online, then I think you have an ethical responsibility to ensure that your material is, for the most part, pretty accurate. That's a good point. And I have a really big issue with those whose materials are not anywhere close to accurate, and they continue to post stuff online. I guess they, I think it's... It just, I think it's unethical, but, yep. but it's tricky because I don't think they know that obviously they don't know the stuff they're publishing is not good. So is it really unethical if they don't, if they're not aware that like, it's not like, oh, this is bad. I'm going to post it. Anyway, I got to do some soul searching, Zach. Um, nice. I got one thing for you. Go for it. This is actually related to all the stuff we were just talking about. And both of us had mentioned that we don't think if you're in a competitive, like if you're playing matches, a player should be overly technical in the way that they think. Um, Yep. What do you think about that as it pertains to somebody serving? So like the most closed skill we have in our sport, serving. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a that's a, that's a good question actually. I still think <clears throat> sorry, I still think that like um I think the same logic applies because you're still you're still under a time pressure, you're still under Pressure, pressure, if we want to call it that. Um, and so you need to be able to execute in a quasi-flow state without th- any any overthinking or, or you know, paralysis of an, by analysis will affect the execution of the, mo- of the movement. Well, like, I don't like okay. gymnastics is yeah. close skill, right? But I think if you tell a gymnast, hey, think about your arm position when you're yeah. jumping off this thing and catching the bar and this, like, of course, then they're going to fall. So like they still have to execute without thinking just because it's closed doesn't mean that you know, there's still an element of time pressure and, and psychological pressure. So I think it's the same same logic applies on the surf. That's interesting. 
because I certainly that was the great. Oh, let's no, go. <laughs> um, I oftentimes give give athletes. Okay, if it's an athlete who really likes that stuff and it feels like they're helping, I'll often give athletes technical cues on their serve. Huge difference, but, though. Huge difference, though. This okay. is, and this, by the way, this I think is a. Um, this for me is also one of the one of the biggest things I ever took away from Louis, and I can't even remember where I saw it. I saw it once, heard him say it once, or maybe I, maybe it was live, maybe it was in person that he said it to me. But he said, "There's a massive difference between changing technique and work and working on technique." And for him, those are two different things. And his point was, if someone's in competition, because his point was about, I think it was around traveling, traveling to clubs, and they were always saying, oh, you can't come now, we're in a competition block, like you can't do any technical work, whatever, whatever, whatever. And his point, I'm going to make a, you know, take a real risk here and paraphrase Louis, but as mm -hmm. I understood it, his point was that if you're at a tournament with someone, you're not going to sit there and go, let's, we're going to change your grip. Let's change your preparation. Let's right. alter this motor pattern. That's yeah. that's dumb, right? But you can continue to work on something that they already have a feel for, right? So you can say, hey, we're, you're, you're in competition. It's it's before the match. It's after the match, whatever. And you go, hey, let's take a couple minutes here. Let's just let's just get the feeling on that punch volley, mm -hmm. right? Or let's just get the feeling on that that catch and turn on the return of serve or whatever. Yeah. Like that's something that they've all they already have the feeling, and you're just continuing to work on it. Mm -hmm. And so I think technical cues fall into that category, right? Where that's just a cue. It's a, it's a, it's a cue word or whatever. It's a feeling for them. And you say, Hey, think about this, think about this feeling. Then they're not thinking about the technique or they're not thinking about uh, the actual movement of their body. They're thinking about a feeling or they're thinking about something that they can already do. Yeah. Okay. That makes not me to feel put, a lot not to better. Put words, not to put words in your mouth, but I, I suspect that's what you're doing. No, hundred percent. But that makes me feel way better because I think I've taken over my career in in brackets i've taken i've taken that we don't work on technique in competition phases way too literally mm. i've told you the story before but i had one boy that was two points away from quarterfinals of 18 nationals and his backhand slice was just so horrendous for months but long story short it's like i, I didn't we're in a comp phase it wasn't months for, for weeks and i, I just mm. i didn't didn't give him any technical feedback because i by the tennis canada book i wasn't supposed to or how i perceive the tennis canada book Mm. so he has max points to get the quarters he loses um anyway the, the, when he came back into training we uh, get, said two words to him and a slice was instantly better like they, they gave him two technical cues on a slice and instantly yeah. it was like it was way better and it, had yeah. i just done that then he would have quartered at nationals yeah yeah and i remember that being a very big learning experience for me but so that's yeah anyway long story short i'm taking it too literally yeah so i i think i think if that's what you're doing on the serve in competition i think then that's it makes perfect sense. But the, I think if they're, you know, if they're sitting there trying to do something brand new and you go, Hey, this, you know, this week when you're serving, try and think about your elbow position, having it here or whatever. It's like, if they've never felt that before, then I don't think it's going to be particularly helpful. Well said. Well said. Yes. Thanks man. Cool. So Jordan, uh, has come up a lot in the spot, my right hand man. Um, he just asked like simply, what do you think is the difference between, what differentiates players who end up being top 800 in the world as a junior ITF and ones that make it to top 50. And he's like, he asked this knowing full well that like it, it depends on so many things and he's obviously got his own thoughts on it as well. But um, I think he was curious and I talked to him in person about this. So like, I'm, I think at this point it's more relevant for, for your thoughts as opposed to mine. But I, I think, yeah, I mean, we've talked about variations on that before, but I think it's an interesting one. 
Um, as everyone, I think by now knows my, my first response is going to be tempo <laughs> because mm-hmm. that's, that's uh, very often what I go to. Um, uh, so I, I mean, especially with a wide range like that, the, the level between 800 ITF and 50 ITF is pretty huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're probably looking at uh, almost two points of UTR, I'd, yeah. I'd say yeah. at least one and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, it's pretty sizable. Um, so I think, I think there's a, but I think that, so I think there's a lot of differences. I think one of them for sure is tempo. Um, just like the, the speed at which they can do everything, rally, mm-hmm. attack, defend, serve, return, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's also a big difference in terms of the quality of like, um, their weapons, essentially. I think like mm-hmm. a, you know, a 50 ITF is going to have some really clear weapons, mm-hmm. whereas an 800 ITF might not, you can be 800 ITF and just kind of do everything decent. Um, yeah. especially if you're tactically smart and you, and you, and you're fit and all those things. Um, I, it's hard to answer this question without saying everything. Um, yeah. but it is a wide range because now I realize as I'm talking, I think everything, but I think like physically there's going to be a big difference in terms of strength and explosiveness. I yeah. think there's a huge physical difference, honestly, I think, no, of course not always, but I think generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that, um, generally speaking, a player 50 ITF compared to 800 is going to be more um more tactically aware of the way they play um and maybe more tactically smart in a lot of different situations i think it's clear identity clear identity and also just they're gonna make uh, you know it varies player by player but i think a 50 itf player is gonna make two three four poor decisions a match of course, very subjective, but right. versus a player 800 ITF could do could easily do double that, I think, yeah. where you sit there and go, ah, you, you know, and it's usually in, in tricky little situations, a little passing situation or a little where it's like, mm, actually, that was the right play. Yeah. You know, this should have done this or whatever. I think generally speaking, um, yeah, the higher level players just make the right decision much more frequently, no matter how uh, uncomfortable of a situation it is or how long of a point it is or how tired they are physically or mentally. Um, yeah they're just tactically sharper. Yeah. It's funny how you said um, that like a top 50 player might make four, roughly four wrong decisions in an action, like an 800 player might make eight. And like mm. the different, like to, that four decision difference doesn't seem like a lot, but it's like, well, that's a game. Yeah. You know, so it's like the, the margins in, in this sport. Oh boy. And then yeah. the first thing that you mentioned, cause I'm, I mentioned to Jordan that my, my feelings are very similar to yours. And I think you probably influence this, um, in me but just yeah the, the tempo thing is like how quickly can they can they maintain skills at a, at a higher speed and then you brought up the utr thing where it's like well, what is a two-point difference it's like wow how cool would it be and this is just the the loser coach me talking but if there was a direct correlation between a tempo that players could do things in utr so it's like okay if you're an 11 utr it's like well you can you can rally at a 1.4 um second speed for x amount of time but somebody see a 13 it's like oh well this guy's 1.2 and like it would be so interesting to have like a quantifiable measure and we have those anyway right because we have all the statistics from like what the top 100 player would do what under 18 player would do but it'd be really cool to see it on on a profile anyway yeah it'd be it'd be a fun experiment at some point to, i mean you could probably do um yeah it'd be a fun experiment you could you work that into the should work that into the next uh like coach three or whatever make everyone go to nationals and just uh, record 10 ball times and, and 
and write down you the, the players and then just get just get a whole ton of data because i'm yeah. sure you'd find some sort of correlation but it depends how you measure yeah. it i guess mike um and often when you mention stuff it, it leads me to other questions so we're we're in a, a big theme in our itf program right now where um we're talking we're just talking a lot about like Okay, we're putting them in situations where they have to, they have to hit past a three quarter court line, and I've I've prefaced this by saying that I've sent them your article. I've prefaced our athletes saying like, listen, we're not saying you go out there and you compete and you only do this, but one of the things we're really looking to do is, well, a, it's like we wanted to improve the quality or speed of the ball that they were sending through mm -hmm. speed and depth, mm -hmm. um, but also the big thing is we want them to have less time from a reception or perception and reception into things so that we could get them more versed at like okay i have less time but i can still maintain some semblance of quality that's going to be effective at whatever level mm -hmm. so i guess my question on the the whole the tempo thing is how much do you think it's like players struggle with the projection of that and how often do you think players struggle with the reception of that do you know what i mean yeah i think almost always reception but that's mm -hmm. i mean that's what we're finding but that's also a, in fairness though it, it like it depends once again that's how you define things i think in terms of like rally tempo it's almost always reception right mm -hmm. but i yep. think when we talk about the when i talk about like that's why i almost like when i first started really baking this into my philosophy i called it speed of execution um just because i said uh, in my head it wasn't just about rally because we talk at least in canada about rally tempo mm -hmm. and for me it wasn't just about rally tempo it was speed of execution it was the speed how fast of a cross-court angle can you hit how fast mm -hmm. of an attack can you hit how fast of a serve can you return how fast can you move out to the ball as well? So it was, it was just the whole package. Yeah. My, my, my theory was, my hypothesis was that you can take under 14 tennis at an international level and press fast forward on it and play it at 1.1 times speed. And then you've got ATP level tennis. I'm not, not necessarily 1.1, 1.2, whatever it is. I, yeah. That number is made up. But that was my, Very essentially, cool. that was my thesis was you take yeah. this tempo and you just speed it up. And that's why I call it speed of execution. So all that to say, that I think in terms of rally tempo, I think it's a it's a reception, uh, most often a reception issue. But I think when we talk about, you know, going to that next level, I think you also have to look at how hard of an attack can someone hit. Like this is like that that and and so I think that's not that's not a reception issue in any way. But just mm -hmm. receiving a slow ball, can you kick the shit out of that ball, yep. or is it too slow and is someone going to get to it? Because mm -hmm. that makes a difference. Yep. Yeah. Well said. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah, man. Well, Jordan, let us know what you think. You got the energy for one more question? Sure do. All right. Get ready to talk. This is from uh, Thomas Alm, Swedish coach based out of Spain, who sent this one in to me, and, and we chatted about it a little bit. But he wanted to know our thoughts on um, players having multiple coaches. Um, so sort of a not necessarily different environments, because um, mm -hmm. I, think, I think our thoughts on that are pretty clear. But players who have multiple coaches as part of their coaching team. Um, your your thoughts on that in terms, uh, if there's a gender difference or if there's an age difference, is there an, is it better or worse at younger or older ages, better or worse for male or female players? Um, yeah, your thoughts overall on that idea. Yeah, we I, like like many other things, we've touched on this a little bit in the past, but I just think it, it depends on a lot, right? And it depends on, Okay, it depends on the player, but it also depends a lot on like what's what's your coaching environment like. Like, is it do you come from an environment where every every coach in your program is on the same page in terms of what they prioritize development wise, mm. or do you have one coach who's leading the charge for a player, um, with all their planning or their their development plan, and then 
do all the other coaches that are there that might be working with them, are they bought in that same plan? Um, and do they have the ability to see it the same way that the head coach would see it? So as I start talking about this out loud, um, it seems difficult to have multiple multiple coaches at the same time. It's certainly possible. Um, and I think it can be effective. Like there's, there's also times too where I think it's good to have a, a second set of eyes. But my overall feeling is I think like if it's if it's a player that has multiple coaches that are not on the same page or multiple coaches that all have the same level of involvement, it's probably not good for the athlete. But if it's multiple coaches where it's very very clear that Zach is the one who is doing all the development and making all the decisions for this athlete, and everybody else follows suit, I think that can be beneficial. Because personally, what I find is like almost all of the players that I'm working with right now, and just there's multiple coaches that work with all the players that I am sort of responsible for. And some of that's a time management thing. Like it's like, um, like Bronco helps out a lot. Jordan helps out a lot. There's some, some coaches even at other clubs that help out a lot that I'm, that I'm quite close with. Um, because the reality is for in my personal environment, and maybe this is changes from coach to coach, but in my personal environment, like I don't have the time to be doing, um, 25 hours a week with every one of our athletes. Now, does that mean that the athlete shouldn't be training 25 hours a week? It's like, no, well, they, they, they certainly should have, um, or they certainly should. So, I mean, that's my perspective, my quick perspective from an academy environment. Um, but I know you mentioned that Thomas is like a very successful, like tour level coach. So I think when you get to that level, when it's like, yeah, you're, you're touring, I think it becomes very difficult to have multiple tennis voices. What do you think? No, that's well said. I mean, I think I'm still, it's still something that I'm undecided on. I think I completely agree with you. And that was what, what I said to Thomas. I think there has to be a clear, um, I can't remember. I think I also said this on one of the other episodes, but uh, I used the term that Nick Saviano used in his uh, book, Maximum Tennis, but developmental team leader. Like there has to be mm-hmm. someone who's in charge of the development team. And as you said, sets the vision and sets the priorities and makes the the key decisions. Um, I think that person has to be there, but I also think that you, you, you can get pretty stale pretty quick if it's only is one coach, one coach all the time, yeah. we just, especially just working with that player. And that doesn't happen very often, but I think there is that risk. Um, and there's a lot of a benefit to going outside the box and saying, Hey, let's try this. Let's do this. There's a great example of that in the Andy Murray documentary resurfacing. I was going to say resurface, but I think it's resurfacing. Mm. which I I've also maybe mentioned on the pod before, but I highly recommend anyone check out, but, and he's been with his fitness coach, Matt Little uh, for ages. But yeah. at one point they said, you know, like I, you know, I, I want to try something different. I need a breath of fresh air. And they went to this guy in the States and yeah. tried a couple different things. So I think there's, um, so there is that there is value on getting that, that second set of eyes and that other voice. And I think not only from, not only from a pure coaching perspective, but also from a relational perspective to give the player, to give the player some space and and the coach some space as well. And, and just to keep things, yeah, keep things fresh. 100%. Um, but, but as, as, uh, as we said, I think it's, um, you do run the risk of, of having too many voices and, and not being, you know, I think even if you're aligned, even if you're aligned, in terms of the vision, I think you have to pay special attention to be aligned in terms of the words that you use as well. Yeah. Because it would go back to keywords, right? Like you talked about working on the serve, like 
if you're working with an athlete on something, you in all likelihood, uh, oh, hopefully, I think most good coaches do this. You establish some some keywords, some key concepts, some key ideas. Yeah, and language you might is super are... important. What's that? The language is super important, right? Yeah. Sorry so to then cut you, you off there. Sorry. No, no, you're good. And, and then, so yeah, you articulate that to to the to the athlete. But then, if they go, another coach could have the exact same vision, but articulate it in a different way such that it means something different for the athlete. And then they try to do something a little bit different or it doesn't feel as natural or just simply feels different. And, and so I think, yeah, being aligned with the language is very, very important. Um, but I do think it can be done. I think it just, as you said, it depends on, depends on the circumstances, how close you are as a team plays mm-hmm. a really big role, how good the communication is as the team. And yeah. also what are the needs of the player as well, right? Is the player in need of a lot of technical development or are, are they in need of support on the road? Are they in need of the social aspect, the psychological aspect? Um, yeah. Are they in need of good hitting? Like, you know, what are they, what are their needs and then how do you cater to them? So I think it does depend on, uh, on a lot of things. Yeah. And just to jump in on the depends part, um, there's some athletes and again, it's sort of, we take it like a group approach in, in, in my environment for sure. Like a group led approach. Mm-hmm. And there's some athletes who respond really, really well to that. But I find the athletes who are very, very inquisitive and ask a lot of questions, it sometimes is not beneficial to have multiple different voices because they'll just like if a coach says something, they'll just ask a lot of questions, which is sometimes can be a bad thing where it's like they almost get sidetracked in in the amount of questions they're asking to multiple different voices. Um, my, my last rambling thought on this, too, is like if. For any of us, if we're in the role where we are not the lead coach and we are the one who is assisting or helping out, there's going to be a captain obvious thing to say, but I just think it's so important to be incredibly respectful of your role in that. And it's like, I think we all have an ego where we all, it's not uncommon for coaches to think that they might find, have a way to get things done better, but it's incredibly important to just like, to stay in your lane in that and be like, no, this is for the athlete. This isn't about like how the athlete might perceive me or how much I think I can help because they, they've chosen that this is the path they're going to take. And I need to be respectful of that. You know, both really good points. Um, the point about asking questions was really interesting. I hadn't considered that, but that's, that's a valid point. And then, um, yeah, I, yeah, I think being a good assistant is such a valuable skill. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I can't add anything to what you said. I think you, you said that really, really well. Well, that'd be the first. <laughs> Thomas, let me know if we answered your question. Hope we got uh, provided a little something there. Maybe. Yeah, I'm curious his thoughts too, because I know you mentioned before we started the pod that he's been quite successful on the tour. So I'm really curious his thoughts on that. He and was he's still doing tour stuff, or is if he's an academy environment now? But be very curious I, to know. I don't. I don't think he'll mind me sharing. He. I know he's. He said that his his belief was that especially for female athletes, it's critical that they only have one coach. Mm. Um, and I asked a follow up about why female athletes. Um, but uh, uh, and he sent me back a couple of messages, but I haven't listened to them yet because okay. I am a procrastinator. Well, so busy guy. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, what is, <laughs> pick and choose, <laughs> choose how you want to frame it. But uh, so that was his uh, that was his take on things. So. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, just to wrap up, I think like I'd like to start to have this list beside me of all these topics that I'd like to revisit in the future because I think that was like the first question that was asked. I thought like. Most of the things I think we, again, we have like a range of where we feel comfortable with it, but there's mm. certain questions where it's like, hmm, like I, I need to be maybe a little more clearer in how I feel about X, Y, and Z sometimes. 
maybe not. Like maybe that's the fun of coaching is maybe not always being as clear as as you might want to be. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's either way, it's an interesting thought experiment. But it always goes down to the it, for me anyway. It always comes down to the Louis international coach thing, right? It used to say like you know you're an international coach if if you answer every question with it depends. But then the next level is it depends on what. So I think it's okay to it's okay to acknowledge that the answer might lie somewhere in get ready the gray zone. But everybody if, drink if if um, it's okay to acknowledge that the answer lies there as long as you can determine what are the factors influencing it. As opposed to just going like, I don't know, no one knows. You know, like I think you have to have some sort of framework for how you attack how you attack these questions because they're gonna come up in your day-to-day coaching at some point. For sure. For sure. So there we go. Well, thanks you're, everybody. You're, you're in charge of, you're in charge of that keeping keeping that list, right? The list no, of I'm things that we're that, yeah. yeah. You ready for my wrap up, my Zach O'Lean wrap up? You ready for this? Yeah, go. That was a great song. Thanks. <laughs> Every time, every time I re-listen to the pod, it's the most abrupt. It's like one of us is a mid-sentence and you'll just throw in that's a great zone. Bye. And it's like, wow, that was abrupt. Give me something better. That was the gray zone. Beautiful. We're cutting it like there. It? Yeah. We're cutting it. Heavy there. breathing really accentuates how important it was. <laughs> I keep meaning. It's too cringy, so I don't think I could do it. But I keep meaning to to play highway to the and then just cut it off and go gray zone <laughs> dude you got you, i'm gonna i will make sure i have that ready for the next pod perfect all right we'll do it then i'm i'm ready perfect. i'm ready for that. all right cool 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 okay that was a great uh, zone bye <laughs>